0: I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, uh, and I'll begin reading in verse 19 uh, down to verse 28. And So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aron, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his power, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be able to have it in our possession, to read it, to meditate upon it, to study it, but most importantly, to hear it preached. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us all faith to hear the things that Christ has done for us, grant to us obedience in light of all that Christ has done. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, we begin a new section in the book of Genesis today, uh, eight, it's number eight out of 10 main sections in the book of Genesis uh, the title of this section is called The Generations of Isaac. There had been so much anticipation for the birth of Isaac all the way up throughout the, the life and, and uh, sojournings of Abraham, and his father. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting, anticipating his birth. Well, now that Isaac is a grown man and he's assumed the role of the patriarch from his father, we now have an opportunity to hear about his life. And yet, ironically, when we come to the generations of Isaac or the family history of Isaac, we actually hear relatively little about him. As with all the major sections uh, in Genesis, this narrative is more about the sons of the title character than the title character himself. And that was ultimately the case previously when we heard about Abraham. That was, that was under the heading, The Generations of Terah, his father. And in the next major section, the generations of Jacob, we'll hear more about Joseph and, to a lesser extent, Judah than about Jacob himself. But what we do read about Isaac in this, uh, in this portion of the book of Genesis presents us with a remarkable similarity to Abraham, his father. So we could say, like father, like son. We see uh, so much in common that critical scholars would, uh, would suggest that these stories we read about Isaac are ultimately different versions of the same stories, either being assigned to Abraham or Isaac, because ultimately, in the, in the critical scholar's mind, none of these stories actually happened. But you see, what they're assuming there is that similar things cannot happen to a father and to a son, and what they're ignoring is what we see here is, is a father and a son on the same journey of faith. Isaac is now taking the mantle and continuing on this journey of faith that his father Abraham had had journeyed on. And we see him go through the same ups and downs, the same twists and turns, the same struggling with the same sins, having to face the same sort of uh, tests and trials of faith as his father did. So that's why we see so much similarity between Abraham and Isaac. And yet when there are differences between the two, when we see something uh, uh, slightly different happen to Isaac than happened to his father Abraham, that's what really jumps out at us. That's what grabs our attention where we think, hold on, here's something new. Here the Lord is doing something new uh, with this man. And so perfect example of that would be our passage today where Isaac ultimately has not one, one son, but twins, twin boys. How is the Lord uh, using this to teach us something new. Well, as we begin the generations of of Isaac, uh, we're reminded in verse 19 and 20 of what we've already been told. We're reminded of the fact that Abraham was the one that fathered Isaac, and we're also reminded of that special journey that Abraham's servant took uh, to go find a wife for Isaac, finding Rebekah. Uh, You you may recall, as as that was described back in chapter 24, uh, this this journey of faith that he took to find just the right wife for the child of promise, just the perfect wife to serve as the matriarch of faith, to continue this line of of the people of God that God had promised to raise up. And as we read about that, that woman back in chapter 24, that woman, Rebecca, we read of a vibrant energetic young woman, one who believed the promises of God, one who was eager to serve. And, and as she agreed to go with Abraham's servant, we read of her journey from, from her homeland in, in Padam Aram to the land of Canaan. And as she made her journey on, the, on those camels that, her, that Abraham's servant had brought, no doubt ringing in her ears was the blessing that her family gave to her upon her departure. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. They're uh, invoking a blessing upon her that she would be fruitful and multiply, that she would have children beyond number. And ultimately, we saw the similarity between that blessing and the promises of God, that God, through Abraham and Isaac, would raise up uh, an innumerable company of people, a a, a vast uh, nation, and indeed nations upon nations would come from them. But upon arriving in the land of Canaan, marrying Isaac, ultimately that joyful anticipation of having children was dashed and crushed as her and Isaac realized that she, in fact, was barren. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of, of, of anything in recent history? Well, of course. Abraham, upon embarking this journey of faith... Coming into the land of Canaan, we're told of Sarah, his wife, that she too was barren. And so here we, we again are faced with this horrible reality of barrenness. Barrenness in the ancient world was considered a curse. And as difficult as that was for ordinary couples, and still is to this day, uh, of a very challenging thing for a couple to realize that they cannot conceive and have a child of their own. The fact that Rebecca couldn't conceive... Is a total tragedy. tragedy. Because again, it is through, uh, through childbearing, through having children, that the Lord will take this small family unit and turn it into a nation. That's ultimately one of the promises he gave to Abraham. But how can he realize that? When the matriarch, when the mother of faith, is unable to have children. Once again we see that the the wife of the patriarch is barren and unable on her own power to produce the child of promise. Unable on their own to be able to have children. And so here we see the Lord once again use barrenness to teach an important lesson. That the promises of the gospel would not be realized through the works of the flesh. That the new heavens and new earth and the new humanity that would dwell in it would not come about through ordinary generation, but would need the extraordinary working of the Holy Spirit, would need the power of God to realize these things. And he uses barrenness to teach them this lesson. Well, if anybody knew that that it was ultimately the Lord who opened and closed wombs, it should be Isaac. After all, think of Isaac's miraculous birth, the fact that he was born to a 90-year-old woman. He knew that the Lord was able to open the wombs, and so Isaac acts in faith in verse 21, and we read that he prayed to the Lord for his wife. He prays that the Lord would open her womb. He prays that the Lord would bless them with children. And immediately there in verse 21, we read that the Lord granted his prayer. The way it's written, we might initially assume that, the, that uh, they realized they were barren, that he prayed, and immediately the Lord answered, their question, uh, answered his prayer, that it was only a brief period of time that Rebecca remained childless. And we may wonder, wow, that's great. The Lord answers prayers awfully fast. Until we read later on that after the twins are born in verse 26, that Isaac was 60 years old when the children were born. I've told you earlier, I'm not a math major, but we're told that he took Rebecca to be his wife when he was 40 and the twins were born when he was 60. And so how long did Isaac have to labor in prayer for his wife to conceive? How long did they have to wait? 20 years. The Lord had them wait 20 years where this couple of the child of promise that through whom this nation will be born, 20 years have remained childless. That's only five years less than his father Abraham had to wait. And so the Lord, again, taking, uh, uh, teaching them patience, teaching them faith, teaching them to go through this journey relying upon him and his extraordinary power rather than what they can bring about through their own Uh, through their own might. And in a perfect example of be careful what you wish for, after waiting uh, over 19 years to conceive, when Rebecca finally does conceive and becomes pregnant, she immediately, or this pregnancy, is torture for her. We read uh, of of the twins within her, the children within her womb, struggling together. This is a a, a painful, difficult pregnancy for her. Uh, The the Hebrew word there is very vivid when it it describes the children struggling within her womb. It can also be translated smashing or crashing into each other. This word is used uh, in Judges to describe a, a, a millstone falling on top of somebody's head and crushing it. And so literally these twins within her womb are fighting, fighting within the womb. And she's, she's feeling the brunt of that. And so she says, uh, uh, Rebecca's reply is, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? It's, it's a difficult phrase in the Hebrew to translate, but we definitely see her despair. We see her wondering what on earth is going on. Perhaps she is even despairing of life. Uh, so difficult is this pregnancy. And so once again, uh, in, in a time prior to sonograms, without the benefit of being able to go to the doctor and finding out exactly what's going on, you have to wonder, ladies who have who've born children, uh, you know, how difficult this would have been in the ancient world. Without sonograms, what does she do? Well, she turns to prayer. She inquires of the Lord. What on earth is going on here? And the Lord replies with a prophetic message. She is told in verse 23 that she has not one, but two nations within her womb. This is a very interesting way to, re- to describe uh, uh, infant twins, referring to them as nations. But ultimately, what we have here in Jacob and Esau are the heads of two major nations that would emerge. We have Israel coming from Jacob and Edom coming from uh, Esau. And so here, literally, she has two nations within her womb that will be divided and uh, be divided into two people. And yet we are told, or she is told before they are born, that the older shall serve the younger. You see, in the book of Genesis, whenever one son is chosen and the other one is not, when one son is chosen to continue the line of the seed of the woman and the other is passed over and left, we come, we get closer and closer to the birth of Christ. As we've seen this narrowing down, one has to be chosen and the other one is passed over. The, the reference there of the older serving the younger reminds us of the curse of Canaan. Remember back in, uh, after the flood when Noah curses uh, his grandson Canaan? He says that he will be a servant of servants. And so here the fact that, that one, the older son, is to serve the younger ultimately implies that it's the younger who will receive the blessing, where the older will ultimately be cast out. And in the, but when we consider this, this, this choosing of one son over the other, this is something we've already seen with Abraham's sons. Remember, he had two sons. He had the son uh, through the, the bondwoman, Ishmael and he had the son Isaac and even though Ishmael was older perhaps for us We might think that Isaac was a more logical choice And made more sense even though it didn't make sense to Abraham For us we might think well Ishmael was born From Hagar the Egyptian woman and technically he was not born from Sarah And so obviously Isaac was the child of promise obviously Isaac was the one that would be chosen to continue the line from whom Christ would come And yet that's not the case here. Here we have twin boys who have the same exact father, who have the same exact mother, who are literally sharing a womb together, although not comfortably, right? Here we have two boys who on every human standard are completely equal, literally being born at the same time. We don't necessarily have an older and younger, even though one is called the older because he was born minutes before, on a human perspective, these two are on a completely equal footing. And so who will the Lord choose? This is what's new for us. We have, we have the, this, this choice between two. Who will the Lord choose? Well, we see that God's already made his choice. Ultimately, we know that God has made his choice before time began, when he, when he made his eternal decree. He chose one over the other. And yet the, the fact that Sarah, or the fact, sorry, that Rebecca is told who God, who God chose before they were born, before they even had an opportunity to do anything, either good or evil, this teaches us that God's choice, God's election is not based upon works, but rather is based entirely upon Grace. You see, before, this, and this is ultimately is Paul's point that he makes in Romans chapter 9, right? He, he says the reason why God chose them and told Rebecca before they were even born shows that they don't even have an, oppor- they don't even have an opportunity to prove themselves before God. God has sovereignly chose. And that sovereign, that, that sovereign choice is based entirely on grace. That's why we call God's election unconditional, because there are no conditions within us that would ultimately lead God to choose us, but is based entirely upon his good pleasure. It is completely gratuitous. You see here, and, and ultimately... And, and So God's choice, if, if God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael taught us his sovereign power... in choosing the child of promise who was born through the extraordinary power of God, not through the works of the flesh... God's choice of Jacob over Esau teaches us his sovereign grace. That's why Paul can sum sum up this whole thing by saying, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is ultimately God who chooses, uh, chooses the one to whom he will be merciful. And that graciousness shown towards Jacob ultimately is confirmed for us when he is born and he grows up and we hear about this man. We hear about this man, Jacob, ultimately, as we'll see. He's a scoundrel. Good thing he didn't have an opportunity to earn God's pleasure because he would have done everything within his power. He did everything within his power to forfeit that. But ultimately, it teaches us that God's choice, not only of Jacob, but of each and every one of us, is based solely upon grace and not upon our works. And yet it is the younger that God chooses You see, throughout the Old Testament, God constantly subverts the customary rights of the firstborn. We saw that with Isaac being chosen over Ishmael. We see that with Jacob being chosen over Isaac. We'll see that ultimately with Joseph, who will get the double double portion amongst all of his 11 brothers. It is God who chooses the younger over the older, and he continues to work that way. As Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, consider your calling, brothers, This is how the Lord is pleased to work. He is pleased to take the low and the humble and, and, and those who have nothing to contribute to make his people so that no one would boast in the presence of God. And that's ultimately what we see in this choice of Jacob. And so as Rebecca is told, this, this prophecy Uh, You have to wonder what she may have been thinking. She probably left uh, having inquired of the Lord, what's going on with my pregnancy? Why is it so difficult? Uh, uh, She probably left just as confused as before. What does it mean to have two nations in my womb? Uh, Ultimately, uh, perhaps all of that became clear in verse 24 when ultimately it's time to give birth. And behold, it's twins. It's two boys that are born. And then we see, when we consider the, the naming of these twins in verse 25 and 26, it's interesting that they get their names from their distinguishing characteristics. I've known a, a, a number of twins throughout my life. Some, some twins are, uh, are completely the same. They look almost identical, right? And, and I have a hard time telling them apart. Whereas, inter- interestingly, other twins couldn't be more diametrically opposed. And that's ultimately what we see here with the birth of Esau and Jacob. We read that Esau was all red, and he was hairy, a hairy child. And so what do they call him? They call him hairy. That's what Esau means. Uh, ultimately, he'll also get the nickname red because of, uh, we'll, we'll see Lord willing next week, because he, he was wanting this red stew that his brother was making. And so here we have this red, hairy baby come out, and they say, well, let's call him hairy. And then when Jacob comes out, what is he doing he is clutching his brother's heel. Here we see the struggle that they had within the womb is going to continue outside of the womb. And it's as if Jacob is doing everything within his power to keep his brother back. Uh, it's a, it's a, rem- a remarkable story. Even unconsciously, he is, he is uh, being, trying to undermine his brother. And no doubt this would have uh, brought uh, laughter to his parents. And so, since he was clutching his brother's heel, what do they call him? Well, they call him heel grabber. Uh, and ultimately, one who grabs the heel is, is one who is a cheater, is a scoundrel. And ultimately, that's what Jacob means. Uh, it's funny, that I named my own son that. But it's a good name, right? Uh, and, and so, they, so it's these distinguishing uh, character traits, the, the, the red hairy baby and then the other baby who's clutching his heel. Ultimately, these things set the stage for later in life. Uh, uh, the, the, the things that we are told here set the stage for events that are to unfold as these boys grow up. But ultimately, the one thing we see is their struggle within the womb will most certainly continue outside of the womb. And as they grow, in verse 27, we see these twins could not be more polar opposites. Esau, we read, was an outdoorsman. He liked to hunt. He hunted wild game. And in stark contrast, we're told that Jacob was, at least as it's rendered in the ESV, a quiet man. This is a difficult word uh, to uh, translate. Ultimately, the, the word is more commonly translated perfect or complete, and that's usually used in a moral sense, but we know that's not true of Jacob. So it wouldn't be right to call him a perfect man, but perhaps uh, uh, other people have suggested a cultured man or a civilized man as opposed to his brother who's, who, who's a bit more uh, of a brute, and yet, whatever it means, it's, it's clearly a contrast between the brothers. But we're also told, in, in contrast to the fact that Esau liked to live out in the field and, and be hunting all the time, we read that Jacob liked to live in tents. And we have to wonder, well, what kind of person is this guy? Well, ultimately, uh, t- to be described as living in tents doesn't mean that Jacob was a homebody. But, but probably what's being described here is that he worked as a herdsman. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 20, we read of those who dwell in, t- in tents and were herdsmen. And ultimately, in chapter 30, when he goes to work for his uncle Laban, that's exactly what he does. He, he's herding goats. And so probably what's being described here is their profession. Esau is a hunter, hunting wild game, whereas Jacob stayed uh, near camp because he was a herdsman. And yet they are, as I said, completely different and the twin and yet the twins conflict in verse 28 is only exacerbated by the sinfulness of their parents now as their parents show favoritism each parent choosing a twin as their favorite choosing one twin over the other we read that in verse 28 Isaac loved Esau why because he ate of his game once again food being the source of temptation to sin. It was ultimately Esau's, or, uh, Isaac's stomach that led him to love his son Esau over his son Jacob. And we ultimately, we're not told why Rebecca loved Jacob over Esau. Perhaps it was because he was around camp more often. Perhaps they, they, they shared love of cooking. We'll see in the next scene, Jacob is cooking a stew. And then later on, it's Rebecca who cooks a meal. Uh, perhaps it was that they have in common, or perhaps Rebecca is, is taking that divine promise that she was given before the twin's birth, that the, that the older would serve the younger, and she's twisting that, distorting that promise for her own selfish, selfish purposes, in showing favoritism upon one son over the other. Well, sadly, this This sinfulness of the parents in favoring one twin over the other will cause a division in their own marriage, as we see in chapter 27, where Rebecca begins to scheme against her husband, acting uh, uh, behind his back and ultimately causing a rift, not, not only in the relationship between their sons, but in their relationship with one another. Psalm 133 says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And we see the stark opposite of that here in Jacob and Esau. Once again, we see that a family is torn apart by sin. Ultimately, this is what sin does. Sin drives a wedge in human relationships. It, it divides us as we seek to please ourselves rather than serving and loving the other. Just consider the, the, the very first episode in human history after the fall. What are we told? We're, we're told of sibling rivalry. We're told of, of envy that one brother has for the other. We're told of hatred and ultimately murder. As one brother murders the other because, one, uh, because the one's brother's acts were righteous and the other was not. Well, here we see the same sin continuing in this family. This new family that God has raised up to create a new humanity, to dwell in a new heavens and new earth, and yet they are susceptible to sin as well. The division that sin has caused has, uh, is, is in this family As well, and as with Adam and Eve after the fall, as with Noah, as with Abraham, now with Isaac and Rebekah, we see the Lord using sinful people to accomplish his purposes. And so ultimately, if God is going to realize his promises of the new heavens and new earth with a new humanity dwelling within it in in peace and unity, it's not going to come through ordinary generation. It's not going to come through the works of the flesh. It's not going to come... Uh, through these people's own efforts. But ultimately, it has, to be com- it has to come entirely through divine grace. And that's ultimately what we see in the New Testament when Christ comes. If the theme of the Old Testament is division because of sin, right? just think of the Tower of Babel, division because of sin, the theme of the New Testament is union because of Christ. Christ. You see, Jesus Christ came not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. That's what what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Speaking of Christ, he says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, in our passage today, we see two nations being divided, with these two brothers uh, uh, hating one another, and fighting and bickering with one another, and yet when Christ comes, what does he do? He takes the two, and he makes them one in himself. We are one body in Christ. We have been reconciled not only to God, but we are reconciled to one another. This is, a, this is an act of the new creation of God, making a new humanity even now. And when we hear of these amazing promises, we, we, I, I'm sure each and every one of us say, amen. That's great. We're united. And we think that that's just going to happen overnight or happen automatically. And yet when we read the New Testament, when we read of things like we read in Ephesians chapter 2, and then we continue reading the letter with the practical applications that the apostles give to the church, it's very interesting. They say, they tell us in God's word that we are united in Christ Jesus. We are one body. But then they go on to say, now act like it, right? That's the application that we get. Is, is we have the truth that we are united in Christ, but guess what? Unity takes work. And so we read things like, don't let the works of the flesh, which are characterized by enmity and division and dissension, don't let those things rear their ugly head. Be united in love with one another. If any of you have any problem with the other, forgive each other even as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Or uh, yet another example, and we'll close with this, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, so, there, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, Those are, of course, all true. But then what does he say? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's ultimately how we put... That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we put into action what is true of us in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, that's part of our sanctification, is learning not only to love God, but also learning to love our neighbor. And the good news is that Christ has united us together, and that he will present us as that perfect church in perfect unity at his return. Amen? Let's give thanks.